Fandom University. Every other week, we deep dive into the topics we love and obsess over. Comics, novels, movies, sci-fi, and video games receive the elevated discourse they deserve. With your overworked TAs, Sean and Sergio. Hello, welcome to another beautiful episode, another lovely episode, another fantabulous episode of Fandom University. My name is Sergio. And mine is Sean. We are crazy excited for this upcoming arc. This is the first episode of our Aliens arc. Xenomorphs, Ripley, Engineers. Replicants. All that. (laughs) And Sean, Alien is your favorite movie, right? 100% yes, correct. Alien is my very favorite movie. So uh, I've been, as you put it, waist deep in Alien for months now. And so we just decided to sort of turn that to the show. And now you've joined me in the muck or in the goo, I guess. Yeah, like we've just, it's, it's been nonstop Alien for the past several weeks. But before we get into that, we're so excited about these next few episodes that we are going to be doing a couple of different giveaways. The giveaways are pretty freaking cool this time around. Not that a copy of Resident Evil Village wasn't cool, but uh, I'm more excited about these on a deeper nerd level. Sure. First is the Art of Alien Isolation book published by our friends over at Titan Book. If you're a fan of video games and fan of artwork, it merges those two things. It gives you essentially what it's called the art of the alien isolation video game. Yeah, Titan has been really killing it with the alien art books for years now. Like I've got their, um, I've got several of their, their making ofs and um, set photography books and everything. So you definitely want this book if you're a fan. The second is a personal favorite of mine, a copy of the alien role-playing game starter kit from Free League Publishing. This is something, the game itself is something we'll be discussing later on in the arc, but the starter kit comes with everything you need to play the game. It comes with a basic rule book, comes with a couple of different maps, comes with a set of dice. If you are into tabletop role-playing games or have considered getting into it and you're a fan of the aliens franchise you know this is a this is a can't miss yeah and uh, the other thing i would say about the free league stuff is it's it's as good as the titan stuff and it's production value so like these are beautiful everything they've done for the alien rpg is just gorgeous so even if you're not an rpg fan but you love alien and you're a nerd like us you probably just want it for yourself so you want this one way or another looking through all the content from freely you can tell that they're fans of the alien franchise they they sought out this um this license exactly and so you can tell that the passion goes into that goes into what they've made really freaking cool if you want to be entered to win either one of those all you have to do is follow us on twitter our hand Handle is at fandom you podcast and that's just the letter you like university and send out a tweet letting us know that you're following us and use the hashtag fandom you podcast and you'll be automatically entered uh one entry per twitter handle but like we're talking about i mean it's been non-stop aliens for the past several weeks it's have you read this comic and did you have you gotten to this point in this book and what do you think about this plot point why wasn't this question answered do you like the answer to the question that they did answer in this in this case It's ridiculous. Did you read this essay? Here's this live journal post from 2012 that puts it all together. Oh, we will definitely get into the live journal post from 2012 (laughs) that puts it all together for sure. Good. So this episode, we will discuss the Ridley Scott trilogy of sorts, the original Alien film, and the two prequels that came out decades later, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. We'll discuss them in chronological order, if that makes any sense. 
let's look at this from a wide angle lens to start off with. Prometheus, it tells a story or tries to tell a story of the xenomorph origin. It, it definitely starts to lay groundwork for an origin story, but I wouldn't call it an origin story in and of itself. For sure, because the xenomorph actually doesn't make an appearance in the entire movie. Right. You see things that are similar. We see things that are somewhat recognizable to things that we saw in Alien or Aliens, but nothing exactly like what we see in those in those two films. Right. I remember leading up to the release of the film, it's sort of, um, there was a lot of uh, mystery in the air regarding like, it went from in production, like untitled alien prequel to Prometheus. And during publicity, they kept insisting it's not a prequel. It's not a prequel. It's a, you know, an original sci-fi story that has alien in its DNA, which I don't know if that was the, the best approach or not, because I mean, to me, it feels like it clearly is in the same universe as alien. It's intended intentionally setting up things from Alien, even if it's not directly connecting that to that tissue, you know, even if there's still a wide gap between the two. Um, so I don't know if that helped or hurt people's expectations, um, honestly. I remember hearing that Ridley Scott was directing a new sci-fi movie, and I guess it was late in the game for me that I heard like, hey, this actually might be a prequel to Alien. And not like, like you said, not a direct prequel, but something that sort of lays the groundwork, sort of what the Titans are to Greek mythology. Oh, okay. Sort of lays the groundwork. You know, you don't necessarily need to know all that stuff to understand. And then Alien Covenant, I guess, I guess that misstep, I guess the name to Alien Covenant sort of answers that question for you. Like, they realized it was a bit of a misstep to not go ahead, brand this as more of an alien movie. Right, yeah, and is much more firmly grounded in the alien um, ethos, I guess. Like, it, it's much more recognizably an alien movie, and I think actually makes Prometheus make even more sense in retrospect, so it's sort of like, I think it actually helps Prometheus. I remember the first time I saw Prometheus just being sort of confused and nonplussed about what I'd seen and trying to figure out like, you know, I, I didn't realize that it was, I thought it was going to be kind of a straight prequel. So the fact that like, it it almost ends like a TV pilot, you know, with them, you know, shooting off into the stars and they're still searching and nobody has any answers yet. Just being like, what the fuck? But then, you know, you get to Covenant and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, we're going to get the further adventures of Dr. Shaw and her bodiless robot. Yeah. <laughs> her robot head in a bag. We're going to get the further adventures of Dr. Shaw and her helpful robot head in a bag. And then, of course, Alien, which is, it's in the Library of Congress, for goodness sakes. It's that important of a film. Some consider it the greatest film of all time. As far as sci-fi horror goes, it, I don't see anything else coming close to it. I think it's sort of the gold standard for yeah, sci-fi horror. Like There are so many movies that are basically riffs on Alien, you know, that they're still trying, like how there are still sci-fi movies that are trying to do 2001. Less of them now, but you you still get one every few years like Solaris back in 2002. Um, and nobody, I think, has really come close to reproducing that particular flavor like it's so its own thing even now you know 43 years later i love the performances i love the acting in the movie it just seems so natural like everyone in the film it doesn't seem like they're acting it just seems like they're actual people 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's a um and there in the dialogue, even I remember watching the movie on VHS as a kid. I actually had trouble hearing some of the dialogue, especially in like the scenes where they're sitting around the table and eating. Like it it sort of does that Robert Altman thing where there are multiple conversations happening at once and you don't get all of any of it the first time around, but that's not really the point. And movies don't really seem to have the courage to do that anymore. Or it's fallen out of vogue. I remember being like, what the hell is this? As a kid, the first time I watched the movie. But um, I think now as an adult, I think it really just adds to the feeling of like, yeah, yeah, verisimilitude, right? Realism. It makes it feel real. Like it feels like a fully realized world that you're inhabiting. And I think that's Ridley Scott's maybe greatest gift as a filmmaker is his ability to build a world. And then when lightning hits the right way, people it with the right actors to inhabit that world and make it feel real. Well, before we, we could start talking about this. We could just dive in immediately and just start talking on, on any sort, on any, in any tangent. But before we get too deep into um, the performances in Alien and how much we love those, and the uh, plot points of Covenant and how interesting those are. Let's just take a deep breath and let's just go ahead and just dive right in. So in Prometheus, the basic plot is you have Peter Wayland of the subsequent Wayland yutani Corporation has discussed or has financed, has, has, has financed a trip to another planet, which he feels holds a key to mankind's origins to the beginning of civil to the beginning of 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 humans yes yeah he's he's bought um a pitch basically from um dr shaw and holloway who've found these cave paintings all over the world depicting the same star configuration and humans appearing to be circling around a giant pointing to that configuration so they actually have located a configuration in our galaxy i guess that is reachable by Starship, and they think that this is where they'll find, yeah, our secret origin story. So he finances this trip, a trillion dollars, uh, on the ship Prometheus that is captained by Janik, played by Idris Elba. Uh, it has, you know, it it feels it feels less working man than Alien. More corporate. It feel it feels less working man than Alien, but Idris Elba's performance you get the impression that this is a guy who is former military and is now parlaying the skills that he learned in the military to as his career. Yeah, yeah. Um, the way that uh, Ridley Scott said, apparently described him uh, to the screenwriters when they were developing the script is he wanted a salty old sea dog, um, which I think that Elba pulls that that charm, that warmth, and that grizzledness off perfectly. Absolutely, he's he's, he's a delight. And uh, Janik's got his crew as well. You've also got um, you've also got Charlize Theron playing Meredith Vickers. Uh, she seems to be the attaché for the Whalen Corporation, um, but her I guess motivations are a bit murky. And then of course you've got Holloway and Shaw and a team of other um, geologists, biologists, like the scientist crew to do what what it is scientists do on a new planet yes as well as some security personnel for sure yeah you got you got to keep them safe and last but certainly not least there is a synthetic an android played by michael fassbender whose name is david and man i just without spoiling too much 
You can't trust a fucking android, man. You can't trust a fucking robot. Not in the alien universe. Oh, David. David, David, David. Probably the most interesting character in the movie, right? Oh, absolutely. He, he, his performance is phenomenal and the character is written so well. I mean, I feel as if the, the ideas and the philosophy behind these two movies are centered on his, his experience and his journey. Right, as sort of an echo of humanity's journey and relationship to its own origins. And David, unlike us, has a very clear line of sight to his own origin and is unimpressed. Yeah, he's, he doesn't like it. No, he, he, he's like babysitting Wayland and yeah, it's, he doesn't like him. And to be fair, I wouldn't either. So we get to the planet, we find what appears to be a cavern, a cave of sorts. It's entered. They find the they find black goo. They find uh, dead bodies of giant uh, engineers. Um, there's a scene in the movie where, like a holographic AR movie, <laughs> augmented reality <laughs> uh, film is played, and they're running from something. What do you think they're running from? I mean, my my first thought is contamination of some kind that something had gotten loose and it I, I I think that what you see once they go into the vault seems to confirm that because that goo is already like in the ground like the worms are getting into it and turning into giant hammer peeds you know um, so my guess is that there was an either someone got infected and was after them or they were running from the contagion trying not to get got but none of them are actually transformed you know like 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 the the engineer at the end of the movie is so i'm not really sure you know their their bodies are still intact they're just dead i mean we see at the end of the movie what happens when one of them gets infected it produces what's known in the alien universe as a deacon it's a is a xenomorph-like creature. So is that is that what was had them all spooked? Is that was what had them all running around? I mean, it's possible. Um, I guess it's just a question of, you know, where did that thing go then? You know, I mean, and, and, and that's that's possible that that's exactly what it was because they don't spend a lot of time trying to solve that particular mystery in the film. It's like there's so much going on that they're only focusing on like the very biggest questions, you know, like who were they, why are they here? But like without getting into the nitty gritty of like, it's not like a detective story, right? Where you reconstruct the crime bit by bit and see, and then end up with a whole picture. Like you're still working from like a broken set of timeline, you know, uh, by the time the movie ends. So what do you think it was? I think it was a deacon, but at the same time, I feel like, like you said, like, yeah, it, it doesn't spend too much time trying to answer that question because it's got so much going on. And that might be the biggest problem with the movie, which I love. I absolutely thought it was it was visually breathtaking and pacing as a t- technically pacing wise, acting wise is fantastic. Just some aspects of the story don't line up. And 
I think that's one of them is it should be a deacon. I think it's a deacon based on the, I guess, the howl that you hear before the the holograms start running toward the crew. Oh, there's a howl? I never noticed that. I think you might have assumed it was the sound of the, the scanner. Right. As it, like, turns that corner. Mm-hmm. The howl sounds a lot like how the deacon sounds at the end of the movie. Oh, shit. Once we stop recording, I'm going to go back and check that <laughs> and, out. And that's kind of cool. It's like, it's one of those things that you might not catch at first at first glance. And I only caught it after watching a couple of different YouTube videos. And I was, you know, I got all giddy because that's that's how my brain works. And that's how your brain works. When right. We discover little things like that on the on the on the object that we're hyper fixated on. Right. It just it scratches that brain. It's so good. Yeah, it feels like you're a little closer to the heart of the mystery. Um, I guess to let me let me ask you while we're on the subject of mystery, you know, the original alien has this giant mystery at its center that it's not at all concerned about answering, which is the space jockey and the origin of these eggs that they find. Like, how did it get there? And the characters in that movie don't seem that concerned or impressed. They're just trying to survive. Right. Yeah, but but even when they're in the ship, they I mean they seem like oh wow, but they're not like holy shit the first alien ever found or anything you know. Um, when they find the space jockey, like they they seem pretty cold about it, which also begs a lot of interesting questions about that world in the original film. But I guess what to double back to Prometheus, which actually is explicitly about asking those questions and investigating them. Do you feel like it's a failure on the part of the film to not spend a little more time answering them? Or do you feel like it's sort of in keeping with the ethos of the series of not giving away the whole farm? Is there a question to be asked about class in this? Because it's Peter Whalen who really cares about this. I mean- And Shaw and Holloway. You've got Holloway and Shaw, but they're scientists. They're like, they've made it their job to try to figure this out. You know, the same way I feel like if anyone who puts all this effort into becoming a doctor because they, they want to help people and they want to make, you know, help people get better. So they become, they do this, they have these questions they want answered, but they can't do anything about it without Wayland. Right. Who I guess has nothing better to do since he's, you know, filthy, stinking rich. Well, I think he he doesn't want to die. He wants he wants more life and he's hoping that his creator can give it to him. That's why he's in cryo for most of the movie. Like he thinks he can buy immortality essentially. Whereas the crew from Alien, they're a bunch of working class roughnecks of sorts, you know, like, in fact, there's a scene with Parker and Brett, you know, they're asking about whether or not they're going to get, you know, more money for this. Yeah, if they were going to get shares for answering the distress signal. Exactly. And, you know, Ripley assures them, like, sure, like, yes, they're going to, you're going to get your shares, don't worry about it. Because these guys are mostly motivated by money. They're just, you know, and based on how they how they portray their characters, you know, these are the kind of guys that sort of live paycheck to paycheck. You know, aren't the most financially stable guys. Yeah, yeah. And the Nostromo itself is clearly more of a working class vessel. Like the Prometheus is like top of the line, like holographic readouts and stuff. And and the Nostromo is like everything. I mean, you can argue about when it was made, but I think it speaks to the class of the. Um, you know, the, the characters operating it, that it's not a top of the line, like everything's on screens, it's hard to read, it's cramped, it's not comfortable, you know, it doesn't have 
It's very utilitarian. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Prometheus has the 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 ship, the Prometheus has some real art to it. Maybe your question that speaks to the character's motivations? I mean, maybe. I think my core question is the, the original film doesn't feel like it fails by not answering those questions because the audience is more interested in them than the characters are. But in this case, you have the characters very interested in the answers to these questions, but things aren't as maybe fully... Um, explored as they could be you know if if that's a failure of the film or if that's just like the the pace at which it moves you know because they only go into the pyramid twice right like there's the first expedition in and then the second one with wayland and in the night between shaw gets pregnant charlie dies or do they go out no they go out twice three times because there's the second time where they go out to try and find uh milburn and fifield and it's coming back that holloway dies but the the timeline, it seems like they're being pushed by events of the plot, like David poisoning Holloway and all of that. I remember you talking about in the uh, part episode two of the Resident Evil arc, where we're discussing whether or not those the Resident Evil movies are good. And you bring up the point that, you know, what is what is the movie setting out to do? And that's how I judge if a movie's good or not. If it's setting out to just be a lot of dumb fun and see some, you know, over-the-top action sequences and, you know, some over-the-top stylized violence, well, then, yeah, then, you know, by all, by all accounts, by those accounts, the Resident Evil movies are good. Using that definition here, you know, I would say that that's where Prometheus is lacking in that it sets out to sort of answer some of these questions, but it does also doesn't seem very interested in answering those questions. Whereas Alien, you just have the idea of of mythology behind it like the what the movie sets out to do is be a monster movie on a spaceship right the the rest is is extra yeah yeah you're right um and and not having those answers is part of what makes it so scary like it only adds to the 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 creature's mystique and the horror surrounding it is it doesn't make sense to us um so yeah yeah i would agree um whereas prometheus seems to be yeah almost at cross purposes with itself because you i think that the david arc which becomes clearer in covenant you know about being disappointed with your parents and wishing they were dead and you know um and, and some of that comes across with the engineers i guess but i I don't know. It, it it also feels like there's still some big questions that aren't answered uh, and that Covenant goes out of its way not to answer as well. Um, and you could argue that maybe that's on purpose because Damon Lindelof, who, you know, um, at least rewrote the script, um, that's, that's one of the big tools in his toolkit as a writer, right? He loves to ask a lot of questions, but not necessarily answer all of them. And sometimes, you know, like, um, when Lost was at its best or in the leftovers or uh, Watchmen, you know, that sort of thing like works like gangbusters. And I'm wondering if maybe it works better in TV than in a movie, uh, especially since it wasn't being pitched to the audience as the first of a trilogy or something. It was just like, here it is, this is the movie. And the movie ends with all these questions unanswered, but still looking for answers. So I don't know. I guess I'm a, I, I, I still haven't made up my mind nine years later <laughs> entirely. I mean, I still enjoy it. And that's part of its appeal is some of these questions that aren't answered. Um, I remember us watching Donnie Darko for the first time and 
absolutely being floored by it. It was at the advent of the DVD age. And it was one of the first DVDs I remember you purchased and we just loved it. And a couple of years later, they released the director's cut theatrically. And you and I, uh, with our respective girlfriends, went on a double date. And I don't think either of them had seen the movie yet. And we left the theater. They enjoyed it. They liked it a lot. And we were kind of bummed out because it took all like the it took all the mystery and the mystique uh, and the it took all of that out of the film and explained everything. There was no reason for us to stay up, you know, eating Jack in the Box until midnight. Right. You know, arguing three in and, the morning. Yeah. Arguing and, and dissecting points. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, and, and the, the answer it's the answers themselves were nowhere near as interesting as the questions. And with that kind of story, and I would argue with a story like Alien, that is usually the case, right? Um, these big existential mysteries are what makes that story interesting rather than, you know, like a whodunit where it's like, okay, we have to have the murderer, you know, wrapped up by the end. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting film. It's a frustrating film, but it's also maybe one of the most beautiful films ever made, just period. Like visually, like every time I watch it, I am just completely floored by how gorgeous it is. Like Ridley Scott can direct the fuck out of a movie. Whether the movie's good or not is another question. But as far as like just looking at his films, like I don't know that there is a more painterly director who's still working and especially at his age like he's pushing 70 something at this point i think he definitely uses the medium in a way that very few directors do he can get the most out of it yeah yeah he he seems to think in a cinematic language and it's also interesting because i listened to his director's commentary on the movie last night and it wasn't super interesting like it was really him just sort of talking basically telling the story of the film in real time and it's like i've i know the story i understand that he's even saying lines of dialogue out loud um and then occasionally he'll be like oh yeah i saw um nomi in girl with the dragon tattoo and i loved her and she's great but anyway here's why you know um and to be fair like the the commentary was recorded before the movie came out so like there was nothing to answer to yet as far as audience response or to clarify but it also made me think like that him speaking it's not the same thing as like a writer speaking because they're going to talk about ideas and characters whereas scott like him speaking is the film itself you know not every director is like that i was gonna say he thinks and he thinks in pictures yeah exactly and and that really comes across in his science fiction movies in particular and they all have this amazing look to them which you brought up the xenomorph and how stylized it is why do you think the look of the xenomorph has so much appeal and has had so much appeal for 40 plus years well i think that um hr giger who you know designed it was a true visionary like had a definite voice and what's interesting if you dig into the special features on the original alien is you see that they brought in different artists to design different aspects of the world. So like Giger was responsible for the creature and the spaceship. And I think Mobius designed the spacesuits actually, like the comics artist Mobius and somebody else did the Nostromo. So I think that he's, I think that the the creature design itself is really unique and interesting and it's frightening, but it's also really beautiful. Yes, that, that's, that was gonna be my point exactly, that it's terrifying, but you also can't look away from it. It's engaging. Yeah, it's it's hypnotic. Like you can see why in the original Alien, like Lambert 
sort of becomes transfixed whenever it's heading towards her when they're trying to get out of the ship at the end and Parker keeps telling her to get out of the way and, and she can't because like this thing is just demanding every you know every bit of her attention and will like it's basically just got her rooted to the spot and I think it communicates a sort of existential terror in a in a physical way that's very easy for the audience to relate to I don't know that there are a lot of film monsters that have achieved that level of like iconic Lovecraftian cosmic horror just embodied in a body like with the design you know it's such a and it's also a, a what they've done in the sequels is they proved it to be like a very mutable design too like the, the xenomorph can evolve and change depending on you know the the circumstance or whatever it's um, interacting with and I think that that also gives them a lot of flexibility to play with because the creature is never fully revealed in terms of what it is what it can do where it comes from so it always remains unknowable there's a sort of terrifying beauty to it there's, you're talking about that scene with lambert where she's literally scared stiff she can't move i don't know I, i've never experienced that sort of fear in my life where i just i can't move <laughs> it's it well it's like something from a nightmare right where you can't move fast enough um and i think a lot of good horror movies kind of pick up on that that in fear that we have that we can't outrun the monster that we're frozen to the spot but something about the alien makes that moment still for me at least sing in a way that like other horror movies have kind of aged out um, and I think part of it is that the the suit design was also really well executed like whoever they brought in to actually execute Giger's design and they put a dancer, the seven foot tall dancer inside the original Xenomorph suit. So like, even the way it moves is very graceful. Um, His name is uh, Bolaji Badejo. Yes, yeah. And he had to like, they had to build a swing for him to sit on between takes because of the tail. Nice. You know, yeah. <laughs> There's some great photos of him just kind of swinging on set. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's really cool and it's really scary and it's really flexible too, I think, um, in terms of what it can be or what it can look like while still being recognizably itself. It's almost like, you know, Batman in a way, like Batman has had a lot of different looks, but you know, when you're looking at Batman, you know, like it's a, it's a, that's, that's good character design, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. And completely agree that there are very few examples of a character that has stood the test of time when it, as far as it coming to horror you've got freddy krueger uh michael myers uh, jason Voorhees, the predator although that's more action than horror pinhead what's his real name oh yeah the, the hell priest yeah the hell priest from hellraiser and all those have have some discernible quality to them that stands out freddy krueger he's got the burn face and the claws Michael Myers, he's completely emotionless. It's just this white face of black eyes. Yeah, the blackest eyes. They're almost like you're staring back into the void. Yeah, I'd say that's the closest for me anyway, in terms of uh, representing the void. That's a that's an excellent point. And Jason Voorhees with the hockey mask and the machete and the hell priest. I mean, they call him Pinhead colloquially because he's got all these like pins sticking out of his head. And I mean, that's just great design. And for the most part, that sort of... Thing gets lost, or rather, is it isn't as execu isn't executed as as well as this has, and so that's why you get horror franchises from the '80s or from the '90s that aren't necessarily as well remembered. Whether or not they're any good or not is secondary to the fact that they kind of slip into into cult status. Right into into the cultural mythology, the pop mythology, the zeitgeist, and stay. 
Yeah. Going back to Prometheus, David the android, the synthetic, the robot. I I would call him Pinocchio a boy. synthetic, <laughs> the the not real boy. David takes a drop of the black goo, infects Holloway with it. Holloway then becomes infected, not, but not before impregnating Shaw, who up until this point was infertile, uh, was not able to create life. He's killed and subsequently finds out that she is pregnant. Well, David tells her that it's not a traditional fetus. And so she decides, I got to get this out of me. We end up getting a, I guess, a proto-trilobite. Yeah, it's sort of, um, the way Damon Lindelof described it in the, his commentary was, it's sort of like a proto-facehugger. Like it's it's the great-grandfather or grandmother of the, the facehugger because it's kind of got these tentacles. It's like a little- True, true. And it, it ends up grabbing the engineer's face and shoving something down his, oh, his whole body. Yeah, it's true. It's like full-on Starro the Conqueror. <laughs> Like giant thing uh, that came out of Tiny Dr. Shaw. But yeah, I think they refer to it as a trilobite in the the colloquially, in the pinhead of it all. And that scene, man, that, that scene in the med pod, I think that is an all-timer. Like, that is scary. <laughs> like, I remember in the theater just, like, being backed up against my seat the entire time and thinking, like, God, childbirth is fucking scary. For me, the craziest scene was after the entire crew has left uh, what ends up being a ship and not a cave at all. Milburn and Fifield end up breaking away from the crew. They catch that pussy and want to go back to the ship (laughs) and end up getting separated and getting lost. And so they get themselves into the temple with all the urns of black goo. There is a a snake-like creature that shows up and from it attaching itself to Milborn's hand to the end of that scene is just 60 seconds. I, I timed this, it's about 55 seconds or so. It's about, a, it's 60 seconds of absolute fucking madness and chaos. And this is why I fucking love movies. And this is why I love alien movies. Yeah, it's, um the only thing I don't like about that scene is the Milburn sort of doing like a here girl type thing to it, um, which I'd never quite understood why since Fifield was the one smoking weed. You know, if they were both stoned, I could sort of see it. But taking that away from it yeah like him screaming it's breaking my arm like just that like him snapping it to where his bones sticking out and then it slithers into his suit and And into into his his mouth hole yeah i mean like characterization aside i mean this is the guy who was like dead alien bodies no man fuck this shit i'm out of here to like oh hey (laughs) little crazy alien snake thing what's up buddy which i mean like that thing looked terrifying that thing looked like a ghost cobra and I don't fuck with regular cobras, <laughs> let alone ghost cobras on a fucking, you know, outer space planet. Whose entire face is a mouth. Like, no eyes, no nothing but a mouth. Just a, a like, a little coin purse of a mouth ready to open up and, like, dive down your throat. And that happens about 40 minutes in. And I remember thinking, like, oh, man, we're in for some <laughs> shit. Here comes the Hulk. You know, that's Ridley Scott. Like, he doesn't seem tired at all. Like, you know, a lot of filmmakers seem to you know Ridley Scott not everything he makes is you know like a a straight banger or whatever but like he's still like got the touch you know whatever whenever he's engaged and the material is right and you know he's on his game like that 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 scene the med pod scene also just the the actual violence with the engineer and the giant trilobite at the end like just that imagery and the way it's presented and like executed is so effective and i've always thought of scott as sort of a cold director you know like he's 
he's more of like a an observer you know he's more david than he is ripley like he doesn't necessarily care about the characters uh he's more interested in like watching them which i think works for his style and makes the violence even more terrifying because in some ways it seems so impersonal so finally it's revealed that peter whalen has been alive the whole time the call's coming from inside the ship <laughs> and he they give him like this like kind of like exo skeleton sort of thing so he can walk uh they go back into the engineer ship where there's still an engineer alive in cryo exactly David awakens him from uh, cryo. And at first the engineer seems to, because David speaks to him in the engineer's own language. And at first the engineer seems a little bit impressed and realizes, oh, this is, this is but a mirage of life, of creation. This isn't, this isn't true. And rips his head off and then uses it to bonk Waylon over the head <laughs> and essentially kill him. Yep. Mortally wound him. There's also, that haunting exchange where Wayland, as he's passing, you know, through that veil of tears, says, there's nothing. And David says, I know. Good journey, Mr. Wayland. Like, he sounds almost affectionate or at least wistful about it, which is, I thought it was interesting. Like, I think really communicates his complicated feelings about his creators very well because like, you know, it's like, yeah, no, duh, there's nothing, you know. He's like, okay, now you finally see. Now you get it. Now you understand what I've known since you created me. Yeah, maybe at that point he's got, yeah, game recognized game there at the end. So Shaw uh, ends up escaping with the help of David, who essentially talks her through finding another ship and blasting off with that. Uh, the engineer comes after Shaw to kill her. She escapes with the help of the the giant face hugger, which was like like you said, it was a, just, a, just a visceral image. And then David essentially talk. He says there are other ships, and he talks her through getting on one of those ships, and they fly off. And the film ends with the Deacon coming out of the engineer's chest. We finally, after two hours, we finally see something that resembles a xenomorph. That's how the movie ends. I thought, yeah, um, you had an interesting question in your note. Why are the engineers based on the cave paintings pointing us to a military installation? If they're, you know, gonna goo bomb us, why would they point us? That'd be like us, you know, handing a map to a, you know, a weapons manufacturing site to our children instead of like, hey, here's where we live, come visit us. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It, Shaw makes the argument that it's an invitation. And then once at, at a certain point, Janik being ex-military, it's like, I, I recognize this for what it is. It's a military installation. This is where they manufacture weapons. These things are made to kill. So why are they pointing us to there if the plan was for the engineers simply to, it seemed like they're dead set based on the holographic images that David found. It seemed like they were set on going to earth and dropping the black goo on us. Right, I, I can't think of a good answer for that unless, um... Unless maybe the engineers had to evacuate that world because of the outbreak, but there's not a lot of evidence to support that. All there are, all there is, is that one temple that's visible where they land, at least, um, and some other ships underground. So it doesn't seem like a home world, but maybe it served a different purpose when those paintings were originally created. Maybe there was more than one world in that solar system, but they picked the one that was supposed to be most likely. I don't know. Somebody online might have an answer, but yeah, that that kind of doesn't 
doesn't add up. That's the thing is, it seemed for this movie, it seems every time you start to make some headway into a theory, there's at least one or two inconsistencies that sort of like that, that put holes in it. Yeah, like the, the black goo, for example, just to sort of double down on that. Like, how does it work, right? Like, is it, you know, at the beginning of the movie, we see an engineer ingest what appears to be some of the same substance, but we don't know for sure. And then he disintegrates and that seeds life on that planet. Could be Earth, might not be. Like, it, it's deliberately ambiguous, the filmmakers have confirmed. But appears to be not destructive in the same way that the goo is to Shaw and Holloway, like, where it, like, basically tears them apart. I mean, it disintegrates the engineer, but it also, his DNA starts rebonding into something new. Not apparently monstrous if it's Earth, you know, like, maybe a dinosaur or something, but, like, you know, probably more like a, a, a trilobite or something, you know, some primitive amoebas or whatever the first life on Earth is supposed to be. So uh, you'd point at me to this really interesting analysis of the film that seemed to suggest that uh, humanity's inherent, like, selfishness and desire for life instead of willingness to give life to create more life, that we were selfishly trying to preserve our own lives and subjugate life to us, that our inherent sin, I guess, is what turned it. And I had a little bit of trouble with that idea because that that seemed more mystical than what I'm used to in the alien universe. Although, you know, you look at stuff like the derelict and everything, and it seems to suggest a more um, something eldritch, something otherworldly, not necessarily straight science. But I was kind of interested in where you came down on that. Is it maybe the concentration of it? Or maybe, you know, it's just like nuclear stuff where sometimes you're going to have like, you know, it can be made into a bomb or it can be used to power a city, you know, depending on how you arrange it and how you guide it. The post that you're referencing is from uh, a gentleman known as Cavalorn online. And I'll go ahead and you can find a link to that post in our show notes. To answer your question, I'm not entirely convinced that the process we see in the opening scene goes according to plan. Oh, interesting. I feel based on the violent nature of it that it was divergent from what was normally expected because the engineer himself seems a bit surprised by it. I mean, even if something is painful, if you're expecting the pain, you know, there's there's a sort of, mo- there's there should be some recognition there, right? Yeah, but I mean, there's, I mean, I guess- if I'm playing devil's advocate, I could say it could, it's like having a pain explained to you and then actually feeling it are two completely separate experiences and something can hurt so much worse than you think it's going to or so much less. It's like when you're a kid and you think about a shot, you imagine like the worst pain in the world and then you have it and it sucks, but it's over really quick. And it's like, oh, that wasn't so bad. But, you know, like I assume that the pain of childbirth is like pretty goddamn bad or a kidney stone or something like where your body is undergoing major trauma either to create life or to try and heal itself or dispel something you know that that it could just be more painful than expected i mean like you know there's there's christ you know with the let this cup pass from my lips you know begging for his own life and even asking god why have you forsaken me while he's on the cross so you could argue that even that hurt more than he expected even going into that knowing potentially what it was going to be like. Good segue into Christ because he played pretty heavily into the original draft of this movie that essentially Jesus was an, was an engineer. Uh, he was a, he was an alien and he was sent down by the engineers to sort of course correct humanity and uh, we instead hung him from a tree. And so the engineer was like, fuck that. 
Hell no. We, right. we gotta we gotta take care of these motherfuckers. Plant plant some cave paintings to the bomb site. And that was actually the original script for the movie turned up online, and that was in it. There was a there was a line of dialogue by Shaw who pretty much says exactly that. It's not alluded to. It's not hinted at. It pretty it's it's flat out said explicit. <laughs> and Ridley Scott took it out and was like, he's been said it's a little bit on the nose. I would agree with that. What do you think of that idea? Do you think the movie is better or worse without it? I definitely like it without it, for sure. I I like it better not tied to a specific religious narrative, but I like the idea of them feeling that we've fallen and deciding to basically like God and Genesis with Noah, you know, just wipe the slate clean, but without actually tying it to no, but you know, this makes this religion explicitly true and not necessarily these others. I, I, I like the more general, you know, interpretation instead of like strict allegory or or in that case, didactic storytelling. Prometheus leads to Alien Covenant, which we also read a prequel book to Covenant. We read a prequel to a prequel uh, called Alien Covenant Origin, written by Alan Dean Foster. Man, fucking Alan Dean Foster. Right? <laughs> what? What a mensch. What a saint. That guy, he churns out such solid work. On such a consistent basis. And it's baffling how prolific this guy is. And how good he is. And, you know, he's he's most, I think he's probably most famous for his, you know, work with Star Wars and um, the Alien movies, uh, apart from his original fiction. And something that I would say he's definitely contributed to is like he has enriched those worlds. You know, whether all his contributions ended up being canon or not, like reading the novelization of Star Wars, which he did under the pen name of George Lucas, but you know, everybody knows, or he wrote the first Star Wars novel that wasn't based on a movie. He wrote Splinter of the Mind's Eye. He created the EU. Yeah, basically. Yeah, he launched it. I loved his novelizations of the original trilogy as a kid like the you know when I was first discovering the movies in like junior high uh hunting down the you know the yellowed creased paperbacks at half price books you know it always felt like I had a treasure and it really felt like I was living and getting deeper into that world and its mythology so like even even when his stuff doesn't end up being canon and we'll have an example of how origins doesn't quite fit the canon as established or written he's still doing so much to bring those worlds to life you know what I mean no absolutely Absolutely. And like you talk about finding like those sort of yellowed copies at half price books, there's something that just feels so right about reading mass market paperbacks of sci-fi. Like mm-hmm. I just, I got, I ordered Alex White's The Cold, Aliens of Cold Forge and I can't wait to just fucking crease the shit out of that spine, you know? <laughs> I want uh, like that's just to me the, when I think of in my mind's eye I see a spine so creased and so bent that what was written on it is almost indecipherable. <laughs> I remember in junior high, you know, reading so many mass market Star Wars books and trying so hard not to crack the spine because I didn't want it to fall apart. I wanted to be able to read it again and again, but inevitably, of course, you know, it's a mass market. Like it's almost impossible to keep those things immaculate. But yeah, I, I that's so. Cool. I got it as a paperback, like a trade paper, but I don't know. I might have to go hunt down a couple of, I think they're available as trades and mass markets here in the U.S. I might have to hunt a couple of those down for the ones I haven't read yet. So the story in Origin, in Alien Covenant Origins, is that essentially there is a almost religious type cult that is trying to stop the Covenant from taking off. And their various plots and plans are the plot of that novel. Right. There's a there's a prophet who is having 
visionary dreams of um, basically of the, the the xenomorph and he and his followers who seem to come from all walks of life. They're not just they, they repeatedly strike people who meet them in the book as not like religious crazies, but people who seem otherwise completely rational and normal are so convinced by this man that they believe that if the covenant takes off, it w- it's the harbinger of the end for humankind on earth, um, that we need to stay and hide here rather than, than go out. Um, and of course, we, the audience, you know, the readers know that he's sort of right because we don't really know, uh, at least in the canon, uh, what has happened to earth you know it in the alien universe all we, really the closest we get is at the end of alien resurrection um you know they, they they arrive at earth and ripley says i'm something of a stranger here myself and that's about it oh and ron perlman's character says it's a shithole but they don't they don't you know so we don't know if it ever got overrun with xenomorphs or if just that's opening the doors to other things but it you know it's it's interesting that we know that at least to some degree he's right and i think the the book itself it's not revelatory it just enhances like you said it, it, it builds on the universe and it enhances the characterizations that the of the of who you see in the movie but that idea in and of itself which i guess is like the the crux of the entire novel is fascinating to me i agree i thought it was so cool yeah. and it reminds me of a plot point from an old dark horse comic book where there was a prophet of sorts except he was on the other side he thought that the xenomorph was the messiah right what were they the the church of the immaculate incubation, incubation. yeah and also people and but this was post xenomorph interaction people were having nightmares and just so just so the idea that almost like, like that Lovecraftian sort of existential dread that there's Cthulhu is this elder god that is the source of all fear and anxiety and anger in our world. Yeah. And that he's communicating with the dreamers or communicating with the poets and the sculptors and the, the unwell through dreams as well. Like that's a big plot point in the short story. So I love that idea. Yeah, Alan Dean Foster, man, that guy, that guy is the tits. Yeah, um, the only thing about the book, so I also love the cults, um, their slogan, which is OTBD. Out there be demons. Yeah, which um, I think is such a cool slogan that I'm going to find a way to use it or put it on something that I wear or tattoo it on me or something. Because, put it on your body. Yeah, I'll just tattoo it right over my right bicep, maybe on the back of my neck, like right on the nape, so everybody can always see it. But it, but yeah, I, to me, that that by itself is a worthy addition to the to the world, whether it remains canon or not. It's just so interesting and watching the different ways that they try first non-violently and then eventually just straight up violently uh, to stop this thing that we know can only lead to harm there's there's great dramatic irony in that the same thing with the star wars prequels watching anakin you know just get worse and worse you know we know what's coming we know he's not going to get out of this trouble you know and and still manages to i remember reading the the synopsis of the book because I saw, or you know, I saw the title Origin, and I think Michael Fassbender's on the cover, so I was like, oh, it's going to be a Shaw and David novel. That's awesome. And it is not that at all. Um, it's you know, the the main characters of Covenant make like Daniels and Tennessee uh, and the crew make brief appearances, but it's mostly focused around 
characters who either aren't in the film or who are supporting characters in the film, like Sergeant Loeb, who's the head of uh, security and one of uh, his soldiers, uh, Rosenthal, um, who he hires. And then he, the two of them are helping, I guess, the local police track down the, the cult leaders in London, I think. Yeah. Um, but it's so much more engaging than it should be based on the description. That's, that's what makes the book so special, I think, is that it shouldn't be this interesting uh, because it, it doesn't sound that interesting from the outside, but they don't make a big deal of the cult on the outside either. Like they kind of bury that that lead, I think a little bit. So good on you, Foster, thank you. And, and you talk about possible inconsistencies and whether or not it's gonna remain canon. One of those inconsistencies is it states that the David synthetic model that went on Prometheus was rushed to production, which might explain as to why he kind of went a little bonkers. But yet in Alien Covenant, the opening scene is a much younger Whalen, still, you know, still older, probably in his 40s or 50s, but definitely not the decrepit old man that you see at the end of Prometheus right. uh, having created David. And so, and in fact, uh, I've read online that David is built around 2030, but then the events of Prometheus don't take place until the end of that century, till 2091. So there would be Davids around for like 60 years. At least 60 years. So it doesn't seem like he's rushed. So there's, like you said, there's those inconsistencies here and there. Right. I guess, I guess you could argue that maybe it's a different subset of the David model, but it seems to be just based on the way that Covenant opens at, that there was a long-term relationship between Wayland and David from the front and the David we know from the movies. Like that it's, you know, you could argue that like, maybe it's like iPods where they're different colors or different types or sizes. They all function essentially the same, but maybe the software and the one created for Prometheus was, you know, off because they didn't get him quite right, but that's not- Or maybe they got him too too right. Maybe, yeah. But yeah, I guess that leads into the question of, yeah, Wayland putting a little too much of his own uh, hubris in his creation. Well, Walter in Alien Covenant brings up that certain, I guess, features of the programming were removed because humans found them off-putting. Yeah, they 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 freaked, they got freaked out. David freaked them out. Can you blame them? And so I, I remember asking you the question, like, is, is it the fact that Wayland was his hubris was such and his arrogance was such that he felt he could recreate himself in a physically unlimited form and still expect to control it. Right, which is basically, you know, the ethos of the alien films all over, right? Which is humankind's hubris trying to control something that is completely outside their control, right? It's the same thing from Jurassic Park, right? So much of the alien movies is about humans obnoxious humans, especially the, the masters of humanity, so to speak, whether it's the company or Wayland. It's about class, man. It really is. It's the Wayland yutani Corporation, Peter Wayland himself, Paul Reiser's bitch ass, <laughs> which we'll get to that in the next episode. <laughs> but just these 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 haves that can make the decisions and everything else be damn, well, this is what we want and this is why we want it. And the subsequent destruction that happens to everyone else. Right. How the... How the... Because goddamn fucking the Wayland yutani Corporation, you know, the Wayland Corporation exists in Prometheus and exists all the way through Resurrection. Right. And and um, in the current Titan books, too, there's a book actually set after Resurrection and Wayland yutani is still fucking up people's lives. I love what the movies have to say about man's hubris, about, you know, a class struggle, and then man's fear over not being at the apex, no longer being at the top of the food chain. Humanity, for all intents and purposes, knows nothing else but that. 
yeah, we've, we've been at the top of our own food chain for pretty much ever. Um, and that is one of the most primal fears slash stories that, you know, we, we get told the, the monster that eats people, right? You know, Grindle, uh, Jurassic Park, Alien, you know, all of it. Or, or Frankenstein even, you know, building something that you can't control. I mean, literally, David is Frankenstein's monster. I love the spin of that. Obviously, like you said, David is Frankenstein's monster, and then David himself becomes Dr. Frankenstein and creates another sort of monster right. to destroy his creator. Right, something even more rapacious and insatiable than, than even humanity that makes humanity look tame by comparison. You had brought up the point as to, you know, this the space jockey in the original Alien. Is that David? Did David finally create some Something that was powerful enough to destroy even him. I think there'd be some real poetry to that ending. I think that that would thematically close the loop in a really satisfying way. That yeah, he creates something that could e- that could even thrive inside an android body. You know, his android body. You know, we've seen we've seen Zeno's terror like in Aliens. You see Bishop get ripped apart, but that's that's different from actually having something hatch out of you. I would hope that that would be it. Whether that's David and that ship or not, that would kind of be really nice. I mean, so this is what's interesting is without a confirmed covenant sequel at this point we don't know whether david is the actual sole creator of the xenomorph as we know it from the original films or if he's sort of running on a parallel track with something that the engineers also might have had at some point. You know, it's just David maybe is reinventing the wheel there. As much as I want that third David movie, I'm also okay with the idea that we never quite know because you get to keep some of the mystery around the story while still having some breadcrumbs to to follow and sort of think about and and chew on. Speaking of a Alien Covenant sequel, recently Ridley Scott said that another film is still in the works. And this is a quote from him. He says, that's in process. We went down our route to try and reinvent the wheel with Prometheus and Covenant. Whether or not we go directly back to that is doubtful because Prometheus woke it up very well. But you know, you're asking fundamental questions like, has the alien himself, the face hugger, the chest burster, have they all run out of steam? Do you have to rethink the whole bloody thing and simply use the word to franchise? That's always the fundamental question. So whether or not we get another movie that is a direct sequel to Covenant seems unlikely based on what he's saying, but getting another alien movie probably is, I mean, we're, we've got an alien TV show in the works. From Noah Hawley, who uh, created Legion and Fargo, which are both excellent television programs. I love when someone whose work I respect is tied to a franchise that I love. Yeah, me too. Which is which is why Marvel, their recent MCU films, a lot of them have been really great. Like you've got Ryan Coogler doing the Black Panther mm-hmm. or the director of Nomadland, Chloe Zhao, directing Eternals coming up later this year. So I'm really excited for the TV show. Whether or not we get another sequel, I think it's it's in the works, but whether or not it's a continuation of the David storyline remains to be seen. I'm actually encouraged by those remarks about reinventing the wheel and wondering if these things have run out of steam. Because what happens with a lot of the iconic monsters that, you know, like the ones we mentioned earlier, like Michael Myers, Freddy, Jason, is they eventually become sort of rote. And they also become the heroes of the franchise where you're actually rooting for them rather than the people they're hurting because they're the consistent. They're what you're there to see. And I feel like Alien has been able to dodge that to some degree. Uh, I feel like the closest it comes to the alien becoming a little bit rote is in Resurrection. I don't feel like the creatures are especially scary in that one, but that movie is more of a black comedy than um, 
a horror film. So, it, you know, it, it's kind of interested in something different and has some interesting monsters of its own. But I think they've managed to, the concept is so flexible that, you know, the, especially the first four movies are all completely different from one another. And so I think that it's good that he's, you know, that, and I think Scott made the right call with at least what he was attempting to do with Prometheus, where he's sort of doubling back and like figuring out what's interesting about this idea. Where does it come from? Like, what does it mean? What am I interested in exploring? So that says to me, he's still asking the right questions, which I think is what you have to do with a long running franchise. You know, if you're gonna keep it fresh and interesting, um, is find new ways to explore it, new things to do with it. You know, that's why I think people love Aliens so much, um, when, you know, is that it, takes that original concept and then sort of does something completely different with it and turns it into like a Vietnam movie with a happy ending and uh, much more of a, like a rousing crowd pleaser, but it still feels like a natural extension. You know, that's the last thing I want is for the alien to become rote, to become boring, to become predictable. You know, I, I, want, I want it to be an idiosyncratic franchise. I think you nailed it on the head when you said that the reason Ridley Scott's best choice was to make movies examining almost metatextually why these films have been so popular, like taking those themes and those elements and building movies around that, examining the motif of man's hubris and examining the motif of creation and destruction and their interconnectedness. You know, if, if he doesn't have anything more to say about it, then maybe it's better he doesn't make a third alien movie. You know, like, I I, I like that... Prometheus felt like Ridley Scott had something to say yes. about the alien movie, about the alien universe, whereas it didn't feel like, like it was a cash grab. It felt like an altar had something to say about something that he didn't necessarily create on his own, but something that he helped birth from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And even Alien Covenant feels that way. Alien Covenant, and I'm gonna to try to put this as kindly and amicably as possible, um, us being in the politically correct age that we are in. But if you consider yourself a fan of the Alien franchise and you do not like Alien Covenant, where the fuck do you get off? I'm baffled. I am baffled by people who say they love alien movies and don't like Alien Covenant because it is, it's not the best alien movie by any stretch, but it is note for note a full blown alien picture. He's not exactly a xenomorph, he's a pridomorph at the end of the movie, but for all intents and purposes, that's a xenomorph. I can understand you watch Prometheus. And you walk out like, I thought I was going to get an alien prequel, man. I don't really like, I don't like that. I can understand that. I get it. I don't agree with you. I love Prometheus, I, but I can do the mental gymnastics to get myself to that point. But you walk out of Alien Covenant, well, I don't like that. I, I thought I was going to get an alien. That motherfucker all was an alien movie. Like front to back, it's an alien movie. Like it feels like it's aggressively an alien movie to me, at least in terms of like the, the score has more deliberate callbacks to the original Jerry Goldsmith themes, the, the character archetypes there, you know, especially Daniels is very Ripley-esque, I'd say more so than Shaw. You know, I, I feel like there's much more Tennessee brings that space trucker vibe. I feel like the creature action uh, is much more horrifying it's and it's genuinely scary creature action too that's the thing is like somehow it manages to be 
scary, even though we kind of know what it is by now, because, and I think part of it is that he keeps finding ways to make it more intense. Like they're so much faster in this movie than they've ever been before because, but they somehow don't turn into like space velociraptors or whatever. You know what I mean? Like they, like when that thing comes out of, uh, oh, what's his name? And the, in the med bay towards the beginning and uh, it just starts banging its head against the glass to get out of the med bay. Like that is fucking terrifying. (laughs) Like it's just like right there. Or when they get attacked in the tall grass um, and David rescues them or, you know, the the, the whole power load, not power loader, cargo lifter sequence, you know, when they're trying to get off the planet uh, towards the end. Really, really good alien action. Like, uh, so I'm trying, I don't know why people didn't like it. If I had to guess, uh, I'd say it's probably a lot to do with the David Walter stuff in the middle and the fact that it is very like Prometheus. Like, it feels like if Prometheus and Alien had a baby because it is concerned with big questions. I like that idea. It's essentially Prometheus with fan service. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But yeah, you're talking about the opening scene, which I wanted to touch on before we wrap up. Oh, yeah. It just this about creators and creation and um, who has control and even David selecting his own name, you know, by seeing the statue. It's essentially David's birth. Uh, Waylon asked him to play something on the piano and he starts playing uh, Das Rheingold. And Waylon's passive aggressive bitch ass says it's a bit anemic without the orchestra. Like your your shitty dad who always has to have something to say about everything you do, even whenever you're doing well. David quickly realizes that Waylon will die one day and he won't. And Waylon's response to that is, hey servant, make me some tea, which I feel is the the perfect encapsulation of like the, that of that theme of like man's hubris and arrogance and our seeming inability to believe that we can't control everything, especially the things we create. Exactly, exactly. That our own creations could ever outgrow us. Yeah, 100%. And I, I did want to talk about Das Rheingold actually a little bit. Uh, I did a little bit of research you know, it, it, it's a motif in the film, of course, because it plays at the end with the full orchestra once, uh, you know, we, we see that David has gotten control of the Covenant and um, has brought specimens aboard of his creations to experiment on these 2,000 poor people, you know, for as long as he can. What a what a reveal that was. I, I, you said you didn't suspect it at all. I sort of did. But there's Walter and David, who are both played by Michael Fassbender and are both played completely different. Each performance, he delivers two amazing performances in one film. Often in the same scene. They're in a scuffle, and we're led to believe that Walter is the one who survived. But at the at the very end, David reveals himself to Daniels, who freaks out right before she gets you know stuck in uh, cryo sleep. It is fucking haunting, and like even in the theater, like I was I was just like oh fuck, but also sort of cackling at how evil it was like just like what a ballsy ending like it's so mean and I wonder if that's part of what people hated about it too was that the original Alien trilogy you know even Alien 3 which ends with Ripley's death is still treated as a triumph because she's kept this thing out of the company's hands and ended her life on her own terms um, you know with the circumstances she was in whereas this movie is much meaner in terms of like punishing your investment in these characters um, by having David be triumphant over them having completely snookered them at the end but it feels like the correct ending to the movie absolutely his last line is fantastic don't let the bed bugs bite and that's a smile and 
on his face. It's it's great. But you were talking about Das Rheingold. Oh yeah. So um, I read up on it a little bit. So it's the first of uh, Wagner's ring sequence. It's apparently four operas, usually performed on consecutive nights, and it's the one that apparently is performed the least often of the four because it's not it's it's generally considered the lesser of them because a lot of it is set up but it is largely concerned with one of the two heroes of the piece is loki actually i think he's referred to as loki you know in 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 the german but it's it's loki and odin and there's a big fight over a ring and you can see Tolkien taking notes, you know, reading the plot synopsis and, and this ring that brings horror, that carries a curse and brings, you know, misfortune to whoever holds it. But at the end of the play, Loki kind of has an aside after watching these gods fight the frost giants for this ring and sing about it for 20 years or however long that opera is, turns to the audience and basically says, fuck these gods, I might destroy them all in fire, but I haven't made up my mind yet, which is like such a perfect like David kind of moment. I think that that's one of the things that Ridley Scott brings to these movies that none of the other films in the franchise have is that sort of classical old school, you know, Renaissance, you know, whether it's in painting or, or in opera or classical music or whatever that he brings a different text level to the series than than you get in you know the the other three movies in the franchise no yeah for sure like i feel you know james cameron being a fantastic filmmaker in his own right i feel like his pulls are still from cinema whereas like you said ridley scott's his pulls come from like mythology from opera from classical art from poetry, like there's a ton of Milton brought up in Alien Covenant. I mean, in fact, David quotes it to Walter, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. So I love that moment when, you know, the he's quoting, when David is quoting from Ozymandias, but then he gets the author of the poem wrong. Yeah, he thinks it's Byron, it's actually Shelley. Right, and to me, I just read that moment as proof that David had sort of, you know, skipped a, his needle, skipped a groove, so to speak, that he is in an android form of psychosis at this point, that his programming is not right. Um, how did you read that moment? I read it as either one of two ways, either he was created imperfectly, which would make him imperfect because he was, he was created by an imperfect being, which would also make him imperfect, regardless of what he felt or what he uh, felt. But do androids dream of electric sheep? Uh, <laughs> Regardless of what he what he believed, he was still an imperfect creature that depended on imperfect beings for his existence. Uh, secondly, I mean, this motherfucker had his head ripped off and reattached by someone who was who's not known for her robotics ability, but better known for her cave drawing or cave painting deciphering. Yeah, her her historical uh, detective work. I also thought that that might have had something to do with it that he just you know he wasn't put back together correctly and. That also ties into your theory that he was in some sort of like robotic psychosis. My thought about that is he's already fucking around by the time we get to Prometheus. Like he deliberately poisons Holloway just to see what'll happen. But is that on Wayland's command? That is, is that at Wayland's directive? I don't think so. I mean, you could argue that maybe it is and we just don't see it. Well, he has a line, try harder. So you think that's David interpreting the try harder? Yes. Okay. That's interesting. I did. 
I never put those two dots together. I thought it was David's own curiosity. And he deliberately gets what he considers consent from Holloway before he does it. (laughs) God damn. I said it at the beginning of the show and I'll say it here at the end. Never trust a fucking android. (laughs) Right? I I mean, that's like, that's some like little kid shit where you deliberately phrase a question a certain way to get your mom to answer it the way you want, even though, you know, if you actually told her what you were asking, uh, she'd say no. For sure. Yeah. I've done it. Yeah. We've all done it. I say, yeah, it's a total little kid thing. I remember doing it when I was like 20 years old. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, 20 you know, for us, basically, we're still little kids. Still children. Yeah, I mean, look at us now. When we are in our when our late 30s, spending an afternoon talking about alien movies right. on the internet. Instead of, you know, you spending time with your, your wife and kids or, or me, like... Well, the kids are gone, so oh. it's just the wife. Oh, well, yeah, you you ignore your wife and me ignoring the, 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 the lush fruits of singledom. I don't know. I'd be doing this by myself, even if I weren't here with you. And that's that's exactly the point. Like we, I suggested an alien art a couple weeks ago and we just dove right in. I can't get enough. Like I said, I've, I should be getting the Cold Forge here in a matter of hours. And I listened to uh, Alien Covenant Origins on Audible. That's a free plug for that small service. <laughs> and I'm reading old Dark Horse comic books. I'm watching the movies. And, and you're doing the same thing. You're reading and watching all of this as well. Yeah, and I'm also reading, I've, I've just started reading this book. Um, I've had it for a while, but I hadn't started it yet. It's called Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise. It's by Sarah Welch Larson, um, and it's sort of an academic, I guess, theological. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> I love that sort of shit. I mean, because I've, I've read so many like papers, like having a master's degree in humanities, been literally like waist deep in... Spivak and Fanon and Said and just sort of reading uh, a very academic scholarly approach to the things that I am interested in. And so, yeah, so I'm definitely going to get my own. I'll give some money. I'll definitely support the cause. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a small press and it's it's a short read. It's only about 100 pages long. I would encourage anybody who's interested in uh, diving a little bit deeper into the, uh, to the world and, uh, you know. It just came out too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just I, I had pre-ordered it and it came out before we dived into this arc. So, you know, I, I saw it on the shelf yesterday and I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, that's how much alien stuff I have that I forget about some of the alien stuff I have. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to have read all of that before we record our next episode. I'm also going to try and revisit some of the Blu-ray features in the box set to bring up some of the, the trivia and behind the scenes stuff. You can actually get that entire Blu-ray box set for like 20 bucks on Amazon right now, by the way. Uh, another uh... plug for a small service. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I hope those Amazon kids make it go. I, I hope that that Jeff seems like a good guy, not like Lex Luthor at all in any stretch. No, no. I mean, yes, they're both bald, but not, no, you know, one is clearly evil and the other is a comic book character. We're coal miners digging it out. We're going to mine it out for all it's worth. Yeah. And we're going to enjoy ourselves. We're doing We're going to deplete that vein. You think we're doing this for you? Nah, we're doing it for ourselves. <laughs> But we're so happy that you're listening. Thank you so much for for joining us on this journey and giving us an excuse to talk about our favorite things with a sense of purpose. Yeah, like I, I think you said it best when you said you'd be doing this anyway, and that's exactly right. This isn't what we'd be doing. This isn't a demand that we feel that we felt 
that we shrewdly felt needed to be met. This was something that we're doing anyway and thought like, hey, like maybe other people would want to hear us talk about it as well. It's not homework. This is something that we're passionate about. Alien is Sean's favorite movie, which how old were you when you first watched it? I think I was like 12 or 13. So I didn't I didn't see it till I was a teenager, but uh Okay, so it was a little age appropriate then. Yeah. Like you weren't like some you weren't some 6-year-old watching this movie. <laughs> no, no, I didn't I didn't wander into my to the living room at 3 and uh get traumatized for life or anything. But that good kind of traumatized that it imprinted on you in such a way that it, it was formative. It made me strong in a positive way. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will be back in just a couple of weeks with episode two. We'll discuss the events between Alien and Aliens, uh, Aliens itself, and also Alien 3. And there's a lot of stuff. Like If you haven't tapped into the expanded Alien universe, it's going to be quite a treat. Like we talk about the comics, we talk about novels, talk about the Alien Isolation game itself. It centers on on Amanda Ripley, you know, Ripley, Sigourney Weaver's character, her daughter. Super excited about the next few episodes. Again, the two giveaways that we got going on, the Art of Alien Isolation book and the Alien RPG starter kit. Both of those are being given away at the end of the arc. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter. Links to that, as well as all our other social media stuff, uh, including a link to the Robots Radio Discord. Podcast is now a member of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. And we're super excited about that as well, working with Tom. All the cool people that have shows on that network. The Discord community is very welcoming, not toxic at all. That's important when you're diving into fandoms because they can get pretty nasty pretty quickly. Yeah, people can get really angry or gatekeeper-y or whatever. So um, it's really nice anytime you find a community that's about positivity and love of the thing rather than just loving it so much you hate it i guess <laughs> like some fandoms seem to go into i'm not naming any names what dark recesses of nerddom <laughs> have have uh, have been infected but like i said um all the social media links are there in the show notes as well as a link to the aforementioned uh, live journal post from cavalorn uh, is there anything else that you want to bring up sean before we close out if our listeners are interested i wrote a book uh it's called the cosmology of monsters it's out in paperback now you can get it wherever you get your books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, if you're a Kobo user, I guess. And this is an actual book, not just some little thing that you, you know, you wrote on the side and, and self-published. This is like through an actual publisher. Stephen King read it and loved yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There's a blurb from Stephen King on it. It came out from a branch of Penguin Random House. So you can actually walk into some stores and actually find it on the shelf. I would love it if you would, if you haven't yet, uh, if you checked it out. And if you have already checked it out, uh, you know, buy a few dozen copies for your friends and family why not why yeah. not again thank you so much everyone for listening we are so glad to have you along for this journey we're excited we can't wait we've got a, another two months of alien of xenomorph action coming at you and i i personally am i'm not i'm not sad about that no no i will never be sad about this thank you so much we appreciate it we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks my name is sergio mine is sean be kind to others and be kind to yourself. I loved his performance. I thought he was fucking great. <laughs> Shape up, man. Aside from Ripley, I think he was probably my favorite character. Mine too. I like Dallas a lot, but he doesn't mm -hmm. get to do as much fun. And Owen Ash, obviously. Oh, yeah. yeah He's the Ash best. Great. <laughs> oh, I fucking love him. Short guy, mad at the tall lady. I get it. Resident Evil 8, man.